This podcast with Rabbi Mordecai Finley was one of the top 10 podcasts I've ever recorded in my life. Not only is he an ex-Marine, a jiu-jitsu black belt, but he's also deep in the study of the Kabbalah. And of course, I've heard about the Kabbalah, but I've never really explored it to the fullest extent of what it's really all about. In this podcast, we go through the 10 emanations of the divine, the core principles of the Kabbalah, and it was beautiful to interact with someone with such a wide range of knowledge and experience in his life and to be able to dive deep into these mystical truths. I can't wait to share this podcast with all of you. But before we get started, a word from our single sponsor today, Onnit. And what I want to talk to you about Onnit today is the wide range of Alpha Brain that's now available. Now, of course, Alpha Brain is Onnit's flagship. It's the first product that we came out with and still the thing that we're known for the most. But now we got all kinds of different versions of Alpha Brain. Of course, there's the OG Alpha Brain, the Alpha Brain that myself and Joe Rogan and everybody has been taking from the drop for every podcast, every time we need to sharpen our focus, every time we need to be on the top of our game, and it's still the classic. Then we came out with Alpha Brain Instant, and there's a host of amazing flavors. Now, the advantage of Alpha Brain Instant is that it hits a little faster. The powder dissolves immediately into water it tastes great and it gets into your system faster than the capsules which require a capsule dissolve time so you actually get alpha brain instant a little faster it hits a little quicker and that quickly became many people's favorite and the thing that i travel with because you just bring the little stick packets with you and then we dropped alpha brain black label and this was the first time we reformulated to create an even better version of alpha brain and it's hard to say that, right? Because the Alpha Brain OG is fucking incredible. But this has a few different key ingredients that really up level it to the kind of the next level of the Alpha Brain game. So I really encourage anybody who's tried Alpha Brain, give Alpha Brain Black Label a try. It has a small amount of stimulant in it, which Alpha Brain doesn't at all, and just some different ingredients that really bring you to that next level. So this has quickly become my favorite and many people's favorite. But there's also another form factor, which is the Alpha Brain ready to drink shots. And this also has a little stimulant in it and it hits amazingly quick and is one of the most convenient things to do. You have these little shots that are ready to drink, you crack open the lid, you down one of these things and you are good to go immediately. You don't need to mix it in water. So there's this whole suite of Alpha Brain products that are gonna level up your cognitive functioning and processing, really working with the acetylcholine mechanism, which is one of the neurotransmitters that's responsible for this kind of processing speed and ability to stay focused and sharp. I encourage you guys to explore it, check it out, see if you like it. This is one of the tools that I really believe anybody who's looking for mental performance should really have in their arsenal. Just have some Alpha Brain ready and know that it's there for you when you need to be at the top of your game. And now, an uninterrupted podcast with Rabbi Mordecai Finley. Rabbi Finley. Hey, man. Great to meet you. It's great to meet you, too. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really looking forward to this. Great. So I wanted to start this by expressing, as I was earlier, that I am by genetics, 87% Ashkenazi Jew, and by family tradition, one side of my family was practicing and the other you know, gave up the practice. But what I found as I went into Judaism is it was beautiful for bringing the family together. It was beautiful to have common rituals that kind of everybody got together and was doing the same thing. And there was this 
very warm family spirit. But as I've gone on my spiritual path, I've realized that there was, I, I was missing the essence of deep spirituality. Mm-hmm. And it felt mm-hmm. like the husk that was missing the corn of God mm-hmm. in a lot of the practices. So I just kind of left the practice entirely. And recently, partly from reading Steve Pressfield's books and being mm-hmm. like, aha, there's something really interesting here. Mm-hmm. And then going mm-hmm. a little bit deeper, I've started to see, as with most things, there's a deep mm-hmm. mystical mm-hmm. pathway, a bridge mm-hmm. to the divine mm-hmm. if you follow it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm really excited to talk to you about is to really go deeper into that bridge that mm-hmm. Judaism can provide and see you know, where it ultimately leads when you have that discerning eye that has felt the heart of God mm-hmm. and okay. can find the way through this path. All right, so how many days do we have here? Let's go, however <laughs> long it takes. <laughs> All right, well, the, the most important thing, I think, in studying a tradition is to under, be able to understand poetry, metaphors, myths, and symbols. And uh, once you begin to understand the metaphoric, mythic, symbolic nature of consciousness, then you look at the tradition and you see the tradition is mediating between consciousness and the soul. Mm. So I'll give you a little example. So you've seen the phylacteries, the tefillin that an Orthodox Jews put, puts on their arm? No, I'm oh, not familiar. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll start with something less arcane. Let's just think of Shabbat, okay. the, the Sabbath. Yep. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, by the way, in the Jewish enumeration, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's, 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 that's the first commandment. Mm. So how could that be a commandment? So part of what God is saying is, I'm operating on the idea of human liberty, and Mm. and you're my test case, (laughs) right? I went into Egypt so the world would know for all times that slavery is a moral offense against God. And people say, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I said, it's not about that. It's about the God of the universe humbled the, the, uh, the king of Egypt. Right. And brought out a slave people. And God said, I love the slave people. I don't love the pyramids. I don't love the emperors. I love, the, I love these slaves. And I'm going to turn these slaves into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the first thing God says is, let's get something straight here. I'm the Lord, you God, who rescued you from Egypt. You need to know that that was I that went in there. So when I think of that, I think of the power of the idea of liberty, mm. the power of the idea of human freedom. So over and over again, when you see through the world, what's the most, what has been the most transformative power? Maybe not God, God's will, but a godly idea that people have, have died for, formed countries around, um, you know, gone into other places and, and guaranteed the freedom of other people. So the, the first commandment, which I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So that's the starting place. Right. And then God says, um, and no other gods before me, don't play around with this. I'm claiming you. And when you talk about me, don't do it in a vain way. Do not take my name in vain. And then God says, honor the Sabbath. So God says, we have to have a regular meeting time. You're going to devote a day of the week where we're going to commune with each other. Now, the Bible basically says, don't do labor, you know, toil. But it's not very specific on exactly what you do on the Sabbath day. That's where the rabbis of the Talmudic period filled in. But just, just think for a moment that I say to people, keep the Sabbath for one hour. Keep it for 30 minutes. But one day a week, uh, devote yourself to whatever one understands God to be, however God speaks to you. 
make sure so th that you devote some of that day to that. And the nice thing is we do it as a community because like a rolling 24-hour Sabbath observance. So no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I know we're somewhere across the globe at that moment, somebody else is doing something like what I'm doing. So when you take when you think of the Sabbath not as oh my God I can't watch you know, I'm, I'm, look I'm a reformed rabbi so I don't have that many restrictions <laughs> so I'm more on the positive side you sure. know? so we light candles and we do a Sabbath dinner and study Torah and we just make sure that one day of the week we we elevate things a little bit so start there what what does it mean to have time devoted to God and what does it mean to live life on an elevated level with your community so. it's so much about intention. You know, I mean, there's there's ways to connect to God in so many different ways. It could be the Zen way of a tea ceremony, mm -hmm. where you're connecting in that present moment mm -hmm. and seeing as you pour, you know whisk that masha, connecting to the plants mm -hmm. that actually mm -hmm. made the leaves and the sun that that shone down and the water that rained them, and then how that interacts with your divine being and just being truly present in that. That's an act of worship. That is that is a way, one pathway to do it, but. It is very much about finding the intention there. Well, that's the, that's the exact word. In Hebrew, the word is, is kavanah, K-A-V-A-N-A-H. So kavanah means intentionality. Mm. So uh, there's an ar argument in the Talmud whether all commandments, the fulfilling of commandments, require kavanah, like kol mitzvot tzrichot kavanah. Some say, no, you just do it and uh, you, you get points for obedience. <laughs> there's a whole other side that says if you don't fill the observance with kavanah, it's it's empty. It's almost an affront to the divine. So the tradition that guides me the most, the Hasidic tradition, that is really the emphasis. If you're gonna do something, do it with full intentionality. Yeah. So that's what I say to people. People, I say, it doesn't matter what level your observance is, as long as what you do, you fill it with intentionality. Yeah. And there's another interesting thing that's that's there because in some ways you can say God is everything. God is all things. Mm -hmm. There is no thing other than God. Mm -hmm. God loves all things. But that only works in one specific, you know, understanding of dimensionality. Mm -hmm. Like we have mm -hmm. to translate that all the way down to the 3D. Mm -hmm. And in the 3D, there are things that are far more in divine accord, like the principles of liberty, like the mm -hmm. principles of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be a translation of like, what are the principles that we can actually live by? Because it's not really helpful to say all is God mm -hmm. and God loves everything. Well, okay, great, that's good to know, but punching somebody is not as right. nice as hugging them. Like clearly, you know, like the divine is far more in the process of hugging than striking for no reason or mm -hmm. whatever, because ultimately, to do that, you're in the delusion that somebody is truly separate from you or not as real mm -hmm. or deserving of this. So it's very difficult to be in the presence of the divine and doing one of these things, like mm -hmm. enslaving somebody, mm -hmm. like you know, manipulating them or hurting them in mm -hmm. some way. So there's this important translation from this kind of unicity consciousness down to, all right, what are some ways in which some guidelines that we can understand how to live our life mm -hmm. in divine accord? Mm -hmm. uh, very well put. So. You might say there are levels of consciousness, and every level of consciousness is tuning into a different level of reality. So one level of consciousness is the consciousness that all is God, you know, and mm -hmm. we're we are with we are our souls are connected to the soul of the universe. That right. is one level of consciousness. But then the further down you go, you realize, well, there are evil people. And there are destructive tendencies in every human being. So they don't deny each other. 
it, it's like it's where you're tuning in. So one one part of my day, I might tune into the fullness of the divine presence. Another part of my day, I might tune into the reality of human evil. Another part of my day, I might be tuned into the destructiveness of my own nature. And they're all they're all real. They're not they don't they're not mutually exclusive. Right. So when people say, well, which level of consciousness? I said, well, which level of consciousness is required right now? Right. So if right now what's required is helping somebody overcome their destructive inner forces, that's the reality I'm living in when I'm working with myself. It's another kind of reality I'm living in. So you have to tune your consciousness to what the present requires of you. I think a lot of times this creates what seems like a paradox, but it's only a paradox because you're speaking about different levels of consciousness, Mm -hmm. and those different levels of consciousness have different understandings that actually make sense. So... Mm -hmm there can be something that's inherently paradoxical, mm-hmm. like saying, you know, God isn't in the pyramids and God is, doesn't love the pharaohs and these things. Well, okay, yes, on this level of consciousness, absolutely true, because they're out of divine accord. They're mm-hmm. not in the essence and presence of the divine as they're doing these things. Mm-hmm. However, in another level, of course, they are, right? So exactly. it, it's, and it creates this in, interesting paradox that actually you know, dissolves when you start to separate them by, okay, just which level of consciousness are we talking about, which takes a little bit of precision in your understanding. Precisely. And so I've had friends who are more into the God is all. And the interesting thing is they're very dogmatic about it, (laughs) you know, and I would say, hey, man, let's like, let's loosen up here. Yeah. I understand that God is all, but there's also evil and pyramids are beautiful and they were built by slaves. Yeah. So both are true. They're beautiful, and slaves built them. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out what we're talking about. Are we talking <laughs> about the beauty of, you know, of of geometric forms? I'm all over that. We yeah. study Pythagoras and the beauty of sacred geometry. I can talk about that, and then we'll talk about human subjugation. It's just two different conversations, and they don't exclude each other. So oftentimes, when I'm talking to somebody, I say, "Which level of consciousness are we are we on?" Because we don't need to argue about which level of consciousness is like the right one. Because I think they're all tapped into some level of reality so i just want to know what are we talking about let's talk about that right and not say well my level is better than your level (laughs) yeah that you create this kind of hierarchy of oh well in this level this is this is better but it it's it's not actually helpful to create any hierarchy actually the moment you're creating a hierarchy you're actually putting yourself in a lower level of consciousness anyways right like they're almost self-defeating in that in that attack at the moment you know when you're struggling with yourself that's at the top of the hierarchy because if a person's struggling with themselves, they would say, but God, God made me. So obviously God wants me this way. I said, at one level of consciousness, that's true, but I am not letting you off the hook because <laughs> yeah. you're not going to do that fallback position when it's convenient. If you want to say God made me, then let's have that conversation. Right now you are acting out of accord with divine nature. And that's the problem we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think at the moment, if, if, you're, if you're an authentic person, working on an authentic problem, that's at the top of the hierarchy right now. Mm-hmm. And then you might switch. And so what you don't do is say, uh, as you're saying, the only thing we should be talking about is all is God. I said, maybe, maybe not. You know, but depending right. on what problem we're trying to solve. Right. When you go into the Kabbalah, which is really, and I'll, I'll allow you to explain it, but it seems like from what I've heard you talk about it and the little bit that I know, which I know very little about it, it seems like it starts to become a translation of like how to translate these ideas and philosophies and understandings into practice into in a pragma in some way a pragmatic approach if you can actually understand 
what all of these different things are it, talking it about. It can be. Uh, to be honest, um, a book like the Zohar, which is the founding document of the Kabbalah, it's almost impenetrable for a non-expert. It is esoteric. It is mystical. Um, it is not practical. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a map to the mind of God for the initiated. What happened in the 1700s is the Hasidic tradition tried to translate the mysteries of the Kabbalah into a practical spiritual psychology. So, uh, I mean, I know Kabbalah, I, I, I can teach the Zohar, but my main interest is making it um, applicable mm -hmm. to the spiritual psychology of human beings. So a little bit about the Kabbalah. Uh, the Kabbalah comes into being in the late 1100s, early 1200s in the south of France and in Spain. And it rests on ancient traditions that probably go back, you know, to the, to the Greeks, to the Egyptians, to the Sumerians, which basically sees reality as having higher and lower dimensions. So if you go to Plato, for example, um, he has the idea of the ideal forms. So there's an ideal form of justice a metaphysical idea that we human beings can barely articulate, but we have a sense when something's not right, something's not fair. And someone says, well, define right, define fair. Good luck with that. I mean, it's, it's just mm -hmm. not fully definable, but we, but we know what we're talking about. And then from Plato's perspective, it emanates into human consciousness. Now, Plato wasn't the first person to think about this, nor his teacher Socrates, and we actually don't know who the first person is, because we, you know, we don't have written records that go back that far, that... Um, the divine emanates metaphysical truths into human consciousness. So that's the core idea. And you'll find that idea more or less an organizing idea of Western civilization. Yeah. Eventually you end up with, and another problem is eventually you end up with words, which mm -hmm. is an emblemization, yeah. a condensation of an idea that can never carry the truth of the idea. And then the words become the codex by which we actually form thoughts. Yeah. So it's almost impossible. You, but the point that you're using a word, you're really in a challenging spot because you almost yeah. have to transcend the words to even get anywhere close to what well, the actual you would idea love, is. There, there's a Hasidic practice uh, called Hidbonenut, which means, um, the Hebrew word lahavin means to understand and lihidbonen means to take understanding and apply it within. And there's a practice called meditation on holy words. And the idea that every word is like an opening to a cave. And inside the cave, there are worlds and souls and angels. And you enter from the surface to the word into this inexhaustible, stunning majesty of the interior of consciousness. And it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. But then you come out and you're at the surface of the word. So exactly as you're saying, words mediate between consciousness and the soul. So therefore, one of the worst things we can do is like the literalization of words. Words stand for, for you know, have metaphysical dimensions, have soul dimensions. So this is a, a Hasidic practice that, you know, I, I stumbled into it on my own and then I actually found out it's been a Hasidic practice for a couple of hundred years. This is one of the things that, that got me really interested in Hasidism. Mm -hmm. So exactly as you're saying, this goes back to our, our earlier thought that when you look at traditions and so forth, you have to see the inner kavanah, the inner intention. Well, it's the same thing with language and words. So the Kabbalah is very aware of, aware of that. So the Kabbalah has a system of these 10 emanations. And, and so people want, want to know what the labels are. And I say, they're just labels. <laughs> the meaning of it is not in the label. The meaning of it is when you sink yourself deeply into it 
and you immerse yourself in it. And then you find the interconnections between the 10. It's, it, you, know, you, you have to go in with a certain kind of consciousness. Then you come out. And then, like, you know, again, whatever your tradition is, you know, reform, orthodox, conservative, secular, you know, whatever it is, but bring some of that insight into whatever you're doing. Let's talk about these emanations and let's, yeah. let's see if we can dive okay. a little deeper and right. uh, explore some of these caves. Okay, all right. Well, the top three, um, the, I'll just give you the, the, the normative order, even though different systems name them differently. Because remember, they, they came into being organically in the south of France, north of Spain. They weren't, they weren't issued as dogma. People figured them out. Mm -hmm. So um, there's what I would call the, the majority opinion on the labels. And I differ with other rabbis. Uh, so I'm in, I'm, I'm in one school of thought how to label them. So I just want to make you aware and make your audience sure. aware. There are, there are, the differences are not huge, but, but they're there. So the first three are the most mystical. Okay, so the first one is, the label is crown, keter, crown. But the nickname of it is Ein Sof, which is the infinite. Mm. Another name of it is Mahshava, which is the divine mind. Um, so that really is the center of mystical experience. I, I, don't, I only teach that to people at a more advanced level. The next one is called Chokhmah, which means wisdom. But as a concept, it means the generative point, uh, like in a, ge in a geometry analogy, you know how like a point has no substance until it becomes a line? Right. So the point out of which everything flows. So you go from the infinite to the singular point of the origin of consciousness. That's number two. Number three is called Bina, literally means understanding, but in Kabbalah they call it the quarry, uh, which means once the point generates reality. So those top three, Keter, Chochmah, Bina, uh, crown, wisdom, uh, discernment, what they really mean is infinity, generative point, construction of reality. Yeah. So you have to understand, not, not the label, but when you look at Kabbalah, how the Kabbalah understands what's behind the label. So the top three are really at the mystical level. The bottom seven are the more spiritual psychological. And that's, that's what I spend most of my time teaching is the, the, the lower seven spherot, because they directly apply to human spiritual psychology. Well, let's play around with these first three okay. in, in, in the first place. So it seems like there's a corollary between what many people would call the crown chakra, which mm -hmm. is your connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. And also potentially what comes to mind to me is, you know, Atman and Brahman, mm -hmm. you know, the idea mm -hmm. that there's the universal God and then mm -hmm. there's the Godhead within mm -hmm. the Atman, mm -hmm. which is still the Brahman. Atman mm -hmm. is Brahman. Like this idea that this is our access point to the infinite, but it's still infinite. It's mm -hmm. the, you know, we're not a drop in the ocean where the ocean in a drop, this mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. idea from mm -hmm. Rumi. Very well that, put. That we have that, this access, which is very difficult to understand because it, it's fractal. It's like- It's beyond understanding. That's why, yeah. you know, when, when people ask me, what do I mean by the Ain So, uh, the infinite, I say, um, an, un an unbearably luminous obsidian density, infinite in expansion. <laughs> and they say, I don't understand what you just said. I said, it's not supposed to be understandable. Yeah. You know, it's the deepest darkness. It's you the greatest. You ask for light. words. You ask for I words. Gave I give you some words. Okay. <laughs> Do you so, like them? Here yeah, you go. Here you go. You so, want to make your own? Go for it. There you go. People say, well, it makes my brain hurt. I said, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so anything to, to break the confines of language, uh -huh. then you're projected into mystical consciousness. 
And then when you come back, it's as if your um, consciousness says, what just happened? Mm -hmm. So all you have are metaphors. All you have are oxymorons. So that's why mystics use metaphors and oxymorons to break the, the confines of consciousness. So that's when I say the Ain So, people say, oh, infinite. I said, don't think of infinite extension. Everybody thinks like when they say infinite, they think ongoing. I say, think of infinite density. Mm -hmm. Think of infinite brilliance. Think of infinite darkness. Think of infinite everything. And then go there. And then when you come back, tell me what it was like <laughs> using the best metaphors you can come up with. Mm -hmm. So that's in a way, you know, when I try to teach the Ain Sof, which is, look, you're a natural. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. I, mean, I just arrived in this room and I'm sitting here with a mystic. <laughs> so it's uh, right on. I've had man. a lot of help. I've yeah, well, that's help. good because it's, 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 it's authentic. I mean, I can tell you're... you're you, you, you've mastered the consciousness and mastered the terminology. Um, but see, I, I deal with beginners. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I used to teach at a rabbinical school and people could become rabbis for all kinds of reasons. So I would, they'd come to my mysticism class, my Kabbalah class, and some said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. So I gotta, I gotta slow it way down, sure. you know, and kind of appeal. Have you ever had that moment when you pull up in the driveway and just before you get out of your car and it's night and the stars, and you're there, and, and the home, and the family, and your life, and your past, your present, your future, and yet this moment where reality shudders through you, and you say, what just happened? What just happened? And then I say, so capture that moment. Mm. Live inside that moment. Every, everybody has one of those, True. but they don't know how to name it, so they just forget about it. So teaching this to a beginner is not easy, yeah. and that's why I more or less reserve the upper three spherot for people who have some background in how to manage mystical consciousness. Well, my path, so my path has taken me through the plant medicine path and working with some of the great masters who've carried this tradition, lineages from ancient Shavin to you know the jungles of Peru mm -hmm. to different places. And what's happened is, is that there's the language and the concept and then there's the somatic experience mm -hmm. of the thing when the full evaporation happens and all of the sudden you've been using the word god for your whole life and then you feel god and then you say oh oh god mm -hmm. god mm -hmm. you know and it's and then you understand it with you know it becomes a gnosis rather than a, a knowing with mm -hmm. a k and then you really feel what it's like and that's been exceptionally helpful and what it's allowed is for the exploration of these different maps mm -hmm. and for me to be able to apply meaning like oh I, I i know that i've felt that thing and i've been there and i've i've found i understand what that is from a sensation mm -hmm. in myself a, a knowing that comes from within and that's, that's been really helpful th that's beautifully put so that's how i describe the kabbalah i said it's a map that maps out human consciousness and divine and the experience of the divine and the worth of a map is how well it helps you negotiate the terrain. Right. So the Kabbalah is not better or worse than any other map. The question is, pragmatically, does it lead you where you want to go? So for me, it's an extremely good map. I've studied a lot of traditions. I mean, I have mm -hmm. a doctorate in religion, social ethics. So I've, I mean, it was more on uh, moral philosophy on one hand and symbolic nature of consciousness on the other. But you know, I've studied other religions, and what I realized: every religion has a map. Yeah. And so you know, I'm born into the Jewish tradition and I wanted to know my tradition. So I ended up, you know, I'll tell you how I came to know the Kabbalah. Okay, so I'm an undergraduate in religion. I'm, 23, I'm, I'm, I'm an older undergraduate because I spent uh, three years in the military and you're on a kibbutz. So uh, 
the professor who's a expert in um, Eastern mysticism, he, he says to me, he says, look, I have to give a lecture on the Kabbalah and I really don't get it. <laughs> so I'll give you an A in the course if you read this book on the Kabbalah and you give the lecture. <laughs> so I read this book called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism and I'm reading through one chapter after the other after. I get to the Kabbalah, I'm transfixed. Then I get to the chapter on the Lurianic Kabbalah, I'm in. Then I get to the chapter on Hasidism, I'm done. Right? <laughs> and I, I had a conversion experience wow. preparing for that class. And I said, wow, I think I'm a Hasidic Lurianic Kabbalist. And I, I never went back. I just, I, I mean, I'm reading an academic book, getting ready to give a lecture. And it just unfolded. Yeah. You know, it unfolded. The words connected me to the divine in, in the most unimaginable way. So, so why do I believe in Hasidic Lurianic Kabbalah? Because it worked. Yeah. Because it, it got me there. It's almost like there's this eminent, like this vibration that comes through and it found resonance mm -hmm. where all of the That's, molecules, even though your mind doesn't have molecules, but the molecules of your mind and soul started vibrating and it made a clear, a clear tone, like yeah. a clear note. That's well put. So however consciousness comes from the brain to the mind, I shuddered yeah. when I read the book. And so when I assigned the book, I don't even assign it anymore because most students find it too dense. I found it gripping. It was like reading a thriller. <laughs> so yeah, I shuddered. I absolutely shuddered with the book in my hand. Yeah. And you know, when when truth comes off the page and grabs you by the lapels and looks you in the eye, you know, so it's like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> so that was my that was my first deep experience of the Kabbalah was reading Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism by Gershom Shalom who published it in 1941. Somebody said to Gershom Shalom, do you believe in this stuff? He goes, no, I'm, I don't believe in it. I'm just a scholar. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but he was, he was tapped in. He was, he was tapped in far more than he would admit. Yeah. Going to the second emanation, what comes to mind for me is that there's, in that moment of separation, we become a perspective in the mind of God. Mm -hmm. Like we're just a, a locus, a perspective. Mm -hmm. And we fill in the perspective mm -hmm. with all kinds of things, mm -hmm. but it's like the declaration point of perspective mm -hmm. is, is like it was one Well, the level. perspective would more be the third one where okay. reality is constructed. So the second one, Chokhmah, is the moment when you identify with a generative point. There's no extension yet. Uh -huh. There's no human thought yet. It's just the moment when you realize you're a generative point between the infinite and the human. And so chokhmah, it, it translates as wisdom, but it's a label for something that we wouldn't call wisdom. It's mm. a mystical center point of, you know, of mystical consciousness. Now, wisdom is found in the lower seven sphero, meaning wisdom as far as sure. how to think well and solve problems and understand the human condition. So chokhmah is very confusing to people because it, you slip right through it. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's almost, I guess, in my own practices, there's, there's a, really, it seems to me that there was a decision point where God was the void and God said, yes, it doesn't say anything, mm -hmm. but there was like, just like a yes. Mm -hmm. And in this, yes, there was, it became the active principle. It went from the yin principle to the yang principle. Yeah. And the yes was the source point of emanation, which became articulation. Okay, so you're going to love this tradition. <laughs> so, uh, it says in the Ten Commandments, where the people say to Moses, uh, don't let God talk to us anymore, we're going to die. You get it and bring it to us. So the, the Talmud says, well, how much did God say to the people before they said stop? 
So some people say, um, God only spoke the first commandment. And they said, stop. So of course the next one says, God only said the first word, which is anochi, I. I. Mm. And then one said, God only said the first letter, which is the <laughs> silent Aleph. So all God said was. <laughs> yep. And when God says that. Yeah, when God says <laughs> silence, the Aleph, which is unpronounceable. Yeah. Then the, the extension of the S, yeah, right, would be Bina. Right. Bina. Already moving into it's already the, moving into the, the third construction emanation. of reality. Yeah. yeah. So that's why uh, you know the the keter ein sof is the beyond infinite, and then chokmah is the point that mediates between infinite consciousness and human consciousness. Yeah. And then the third emanation, you ri- you arrive at perspective. Yeah, you arrive at the construction of consciousness, and mm-hmm. um, you know it's not. You know, it comes down to language. I mean, when right. the uh, when the Hasidic masters get to Bina, they say when you study the interior of holy words, that's where you're heading. You're heading into the interior of language. You know, you're with language, but you're in the interior of language. So many Hasidic practices take you into Bina, interior of language, which then kick you into Chokmah, the generative point of consciousness, mm-hmm. which then take you into Ein Sof the mm-hmm. infinite of the divine mind. So it's, you know, programmatically, it's from the infinite to the generative point to the quarry of language. But experientially, it goes a little bit the other way. Right. You go into the quarry of language of Bina, into the generative point of Chokhmah, and then ascend into the Ein Sof. Right, it's almost like retracing the steps, mm-hmm. you know, back up the mountain from exactly right. what came down the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a very, I mean, it's a Hasidic practice. I. I mean, I will teach it to advanced students, and I just actually did a whole, uh, uh, um, like from October till March, I taught this, uh, the classic Hasidic text on this practice. We got six pages into 138 page text. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I bet. Yeah, it I was bet. it was deep, man. And there's there's always, and I'm sure even for you, you know, you go in every time you go in. There's always another layer. One of my level, my my spiritual mentor, one of them, uh, Don Howard Lawler, who spent 50 years bringing the Shavin practice of serving Wachuma, which mm. is a plant medicine that's very heart opening mm. and um, you know several thousand year old practice. And he spent his time, and he, that was always the thing he said. It's like no matter how far you've gone, there's always another layer. There's always a place where you can go even even deeper. Yeah. It's it's infinite. Absolutely. So when I was teaching this text, I had extraordinary experiences. Yeah. First, it's, it's during COVID, so it, it's on Zoom, but then actually our faces are closer to each other than in a classroom. Sure. And I would, you know, and then we'd read a line, I, you know, the Hebrew, and I had an English translation, and they'd say, explain it again. And I'd have to go into the deepest parts of myself to try to convey it. And um, it, I mean, it works. You know, it, when you go into the depth of a mystical text where the author's been there, mm-hmm. and then they're trying to lead you into the quarry, into the generative point, into the infinite mind of God, well, I can't teach it if I'm not doing it, like, almost like real time. Sure. You know, I can't teach it academically. I have to teach it in reality. So um, you know, it became... <laughs> Some nights it was unbearable to teach the class. You know, it's like, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So yeah, that's the realist. For, I mean, again, in the map of the Kabbalah, the upper three spherot, Bina, I'm going backwards now, Bina, yeah. Chokhmah, Ein Sof, that's where mystical consciousness is. Yeah, 
Beautiful. All right. Well, let's break it down to some more of the pragmatic wisdom that's okay. That's carried in. So the first two of the lower seven are called chesed, which means loving kindness. And then its mate is Gvura. They're right across from each other. If you look up uh, Sfirot, you know, on, in a search engine and, you'll, and you put images, you'll find the classic 10, uh, ten emanation diagram of the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. So you see the upper three. Then right under them, you'll see Chesed, which means loving kindness, and Gvura, which literally means strength. However, as concepts, you might say loving kindness begins in, in as it were, force. You know, how you relate to the world. So the, the way that I teach chesed is there are lower levels of chesed and higher levels of chesed. Mm-hmm. So a lower level of chesed would be, for example, love as manipulation. Love as trying to extract reciprocity. Love as pure formalism. And then the, when you go, what I call, I mean, it's a vertical metaphor. You can say you either the deeper or the higher then you go into you know, love as absorbing the presence of another human being, love as service, mm. uh, love as Martin Buber would call it, call it the I thou moment, the ishtundu, the sure. you know the, the deep moment. So when I teach chesed, we have to go on either again either layers of depth or a vertical metaphor. Is it, it the language becomes difficult at that point because there is an argument to be made that at the point that you're doing something for manipulation doing mm-hmm. something for validation doing mm-hmm. something for the ends mm-hmm. not the means of mm-hmm. loving is mm-hmm. it actually love or kindness at that point or it is goes it under or, the label right that's the problem because people will say uh you know sometimes when i'm re- like a real beginner uh what i realize is person a's version of love is now that i love you here's what you must do <laughs> yeah and that becomes clear super quick right and and then i say well think about love as service not what they're supposed to do for you people say shouldn't my wife do this shouldn't my husband do that i said i don't know let's not talk about them let's talk about you (laughs) what should you be doing right and this idea of it's not about demands it's not about entitlements it's a whole other thing going on so they come in they say i love my family why don't they do this for me yeah and so there's a restructuring of consciousness so i'm thinking chesed I got to move them from the lower to the higher or from the surface to the depth, however, whatever metaphor you want to use. I guess it's valuable in that way to keep it under the same label mm-hmm. because that's the label that people are using. Precisely. Anyways, so mm-hmm. they're saying like, I love you, but there's levels to that and there's levels to the meaning of that. And by allowing it to remain and saying, that's not really love. Or it's not the higher level or the deeper yeah, yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. so it, it allows them to kind of explore that with uh and really understand and redefine the same thing for themselves that's exactly right and that's the benefit of using these emanations we can stay in the language game of chesed Mm -hmm. and so when they say i love this i love that we'll stay right in there and then my job is to bring you know myself first of all i mean all this begins in self-psychology and if i do that well then i can bring it to somebody else and what it means to take it to a deeper level or a higher level um but then it's, it's sister, you know, it's right across, it's called Gvura, which literally means strength. But conceptually, uh, at a higher level, means uh, rationality, mm-hmm. good judgment, uh, good boundary setting. And at the lower level, it's, it's um, rigidness, hatred, prejudice. But if you look at, they all use the word judgment. There's good judgment, and there's judgmentalism. Uh-huh. There's good boundary setting, and then there's 
rigidity. So again, we stay in the conceptual world of Gvura so that we can discuss all the levels of it. So yeah, you, you got it exactly right. The efficiency of the Sfirot is you get to stay within one conceptual framework as you move through them. When describing it using the label strength, when really it seems like it's more like judgment. Correct. It, but it's just that's just the translation. But it's- uh, yeah. So in some systems, it's called din, which is an Arabic word that Aramaic word that actually means judgment. Yeah. But almost universally, if you looked it up, you would see gavur, which means strength. But remember, it's just a label. Yeah. So when people say, "Well, why is it called strength?" I said, "It's just a label. Why is a chase lounge called a chase lounge? I don't know. <laughs> like, I know what I do with a, it. A credenza? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. I still don't know what a credenza. Is. I, I don't know what a credenza <laughs> is, but I think I, if someone says that's my credenza, I'm not going to say what. Right. So it's yeah. just a label. I don't sure, get hung sure. up on the label. Like, let's go into the interior. So how do you study the interior? Well, you study text. You study the Zohar. You study the Hasidic literature, and you see how it's used. I mean, this goes uh, if you know the the great um, Austrian British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. I mean, he mm-hmm. said, you know, consciousness works with concepts. Con- consciousness works with our building reality with language, and we don't we shouldn't just look at language as if it names something, but it helps us organize consciousness. So I right. remind people. Don't get hung up on the label. So the interior of Guvura is judgment, going from good judgment, mm-hmm. rationality, good boundary setting. And by the way, for many really loving people, their worst quality is bad judgment. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Like there are such loving people and they almost always get things wrong. I mean, there's that classic saying the the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions that's exactly right Right. which is just bad judgment they're just saying i really want to help but i'm actually not helping anything exactly i mean they they don't know that they're enabling yeah okay so it's fascinating for some people they're uh they got to get from lower chesed to higher chesed other people it's not that they're hateful and prejudiced for example like that's sometimes when i think of gavura din you know strength judgment i'll call it judgment for now there's two sides to lower judgment. One is bad judgment, and one is judgmentalism. And judgmentalism is the source of evil. And you think about it. Judgmentalism is, I'm judging you to be wrong. I'm judging you to be bad. I'm judging you to be subhuman. I'm judging you to be not worthy of human life. So, Which then becomes the justification for all sorts of for all kinds acts. of, exactly. And it's very rare that a human can escape some kind of justification. I mean, we think of the worst of us mm-hmm. uh, that have ever, and I say us, capital U, the worst of all humans of mm-hmm. all time. Mm-hmm. Even Hitler had his rationality. Th- there, that's exactly right? right. And he was the worst of us. That's exactly right. So how do you know when a person is hiding when they don't let other people talk? Because what's the first thing Hitler did? He shut down the free press. Sure. Took over the school system. So they say, well, how do I know when I'm thinking well when I'm not thinking well? I said, do you invite dissent? Mm. Do you invite an interlocutor? And say, please challenge me, make me <laughs> honest. So that's one of the, you know, this is a very Talmudic idea, is open discourse. Like, I'm going to make a point, you respond, and the truth will come out of uh, honest, respectful dialogue. So truth is discovered between people. It's not, it's not a stable thing. So when people say, how do I know? I say, well, the, there's a wisdom tradition of people who have struggle with these issues and they finally come out with a statement for example in like the book of proverbs in the bible so some of the book proverbs i like and some i don't like um but then i come across one that really that really sings him 
And I said, well, is naming something true? Then I run it by somebody. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you, what do you think about this? And then we talk about it because yeah. maybe I'm not understanding it. Maybe it's, it sounds like the good word and it's not the good word. So um, at the higher levels of really getting into rationality, rationality always means testing your ideas with reality and with other people. And the first clue that someone is not acting in higher Gavura is they don't let other people talk. This is one of the challenges that I see with the world right now is Absolutely. that there's so much censorship happening and so much shutting down of ideas and someone expresses someone and if that idea is unpopular, people don't say, well, let me understand what you mean by this. They're saying, cancel, cancel, block, I completely censor. agree with you. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let's all hear each other out. Let's open this conversation and say, these words are clumsy little things. Let's mm -hmm. see what the intention was and let's try to understand I, all I of this. I completely agree with you. and. Um, so sometimes when I say, uh, let's not cancel that person, they said, do you agree with them? I said, no, I don't agree with them, but I like to hear them make their point so I can, I can maybe debate them. And, yeah. you know, and th there's something in there they're trying to get out oftentimes. Sure. There's something in there. And they may not even be aware of it. And by opening the dialogue and hearing them and listening, say, I hear you. And here's my thoughts. You have the opportunity to change yeah. them. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is... Um, uh, you know, when I would say this to people, how can you even talk to these people? I said, there's like a black guy in Georgia or somewhere. And uh, he would meet Klansmen and he would say, meet with me. And he would dialogue with them. And eventually they give him their hood, their clan hood. <laughs> right? Okay. Powerful. Right? So uh, somebody said, how can you talk with them? He says, how many hoods do you have in your closet? So <laughs> That's it turns the out, gangsterous thing to say. Isn't it? That's the gangsterest thing to so say. So he has a closet filled with clan, <laughs> with clan hoods because once they come around, he says, give me your hood. Right. And so he says, how many, how many hoods do you have in your closet? Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. So I read that and I thought, man, that nailed it. So when people say to me, how can you talk to these people? I said, somebody has to talk to them. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's it's such a powerful thing. And in the occasions where someone said something incredibly hateful to me online, mm -hmm. and every once in a while, I'll sense something and I'll just have a feeling like a lot of times I don't engage, but every once in a while, I'll just dive in and I'll, mm -hmm. and I'll engage with them. And it, there's been really powerful moments where I got the metaphorical hood mm -hmm. of, that, of that hatred. Right. And it was really like, hey, man, I'm, and eventually they'll be like, hey, man, I'm sorry about that. I'm just really had a hard time. And I was projecting Look a lot of this stuff. And, and it's it's really potent when that happens you know and it's it's like it's very rewarding and sometimes it doesn't go anywhere that way they're very entrenched in their ideas and and that's okay too mm -hmm. you know but maybe that maybe that effort of showing them you know kindness mm -hmm. in that way which is part of the other emanation just okay i'm going to give you some loving kindness here and see and see if that changes it's your choice mm -hmm. you can hold on to these hateful ideas if you like or you could revise them. Well, you've intuitively grasped why chesed and gavura are connected. Yeah. Because sometimes the way to lead a person to higher rationality and judgment is through chesed, is through loving kindness. And sometimes you bring a person to higher levels of love, it's through rationality. Yeah. Like an enabler, you know, but I'm doing it from love. I said, let's talk rationally about what the, what the consequences of the way you show your love are. So have a rational discussion about what you're doing and what happened next. And then the person says, yeah, I'm not helping, am I? Mm. Right? There's, there's a better way to love. And one way to love is not being an enabler. So it's interesting that chesed and gavura, you know, loving kindness and good judgment, they're actually in a constant dance with each other. Yeah. And so I always teach them as a pair. 
it's also interesting to think that you know a lot of these concepts i think we can sometimes feel like oh man humans just figured this out mm -hmm. like we just figured this thing out mm -hmm. you know when no this was written in the 1100s 1200s <laughs> and they put them next to each other for a reason you know there was deep deep wisdom that was carried in a lot of these maps that when you actually start to think oh yeah all of these new books that are coming out and these new ideas yeah. they're not new ideas they're actually talking you know they've been talked about for many many years sometimes thousands of years exactly so the Kabbalah is rooted in you know a jewish form of neoplatonism and gnosticism i mean the most efficient definition of kabbalah is the uh it's an it's the intersection between jewish neoplatonism and jewish gnosticism so that's the if you know those words then you really get what the kabbalah is trying to do it's trying to deal with the emanatory nature of consciousness and the fact of evil mm. at the same time yeah and platonism and gnosticism don't go well together you know because one believes evil is the absence of the good and the other one believes evil is real and so the Kabbalah says, well, they're both true. Mm -hmm. So let's work with that. So that goes all the way back into the ancient world of Platonism and Gnosticism that were part of you know, our heritage from, from the Greeks and also in the Bible. I mean, they're operating in two different places you know, in the Mediterranean and coming to very similar graphs of reality. I have a feeling that the, uh, what we call the Middle Eastern civilization and the uh, Mediterranean civilization, they were in touch with each other in ways that we that we we just don't know because we don't have written records. Right. But then you go back, for example, the book of Proverbs. Sometimes I'll say a new book, and I just say, well, that's actually an entire commentary on one line of Proverbs. <laughs> There's, you know, again, I don't like every proverb, but the ones I do like, uh, I mean, one of my favorite ones is Proverbs uh, chapter uh, twenty, verse twenty-seven, where it says, "The light of God is the human soul." seeking out the inner chambers of the human heart Whew. yeah proverbs 20 27. i think i need a minute yeah after, right after hearing that say that one more time uh the light of god is the human soul seeking out a heather means a chamber or a room vaten it means belly but it also means the inner life the light of god is the human soul seeking out the hidden chambers of the human being or the human heart or something like that so wow. that's that's one of my meditations of course yeah yeah so you can feel that i could feel that one working i won't say the second person i can feel that one working when i hear it it's like oh wow okay so that's what i what i chant when i my interior chant for example when my wife and daughter light shabbat candles mm -hmm. i'm saying the light of god is the human soul so i'm adding intentionality to the lighting of shabbat candles Mm -hmm. and so i take that as a moment uh you know my kids are grown up now but still you know i got I have four children i think of every one of them i think of their interior nature and i think of the light of god and you know my uh my wife's across from me and i think wow she she bears the light of god like we're so we're like sojourners on this path together she's not just my wife you know, my, my wife may rob it's like it's another light of god in my life mm. so just saying the light of god is the human soul when you light sabbath candles it changes the ritual from okay i'm observing the sabbath to it just orients consciousness and i try to have that last for the whole 24 hours of shabbat and so that's that is actually my motif for shabbat mm. for the you know 24 hours of shabbat the light of god is the human soul and so it's always the light on yeah. you know in the back of consciousness as I, I i hope i can live that all week 
But one of my favorite Hasidic uh, teachers says that one-seventh of every week should be Shabbat. Hmm. And one-seventh of every hour, uh, one-seventh of every day should be Shabbat. Hmm. One-seventh of every hour should be Shabbat. And one-seventh of every second should be Shabbat. <laughs> Isn't that? So, yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Because then it's always there. The it's light always is always there. on. Yeah. One-seventh of every second. The light is always on. Light is on. That's the, so this is speaking to what I was talking about earlier. The way that my family practiced, it was absent of this. And mm-hmm. perhaps I couldn't quite grasp it the way I'm grasping it now. Because when you know the student is ready, the teaching appears, there's these mm-hmm. sayings, this happened. Um, but ultimately, if there was someone who could really embody it as you do and, and express it, I would have felt I would have felt something. And then the candles that were lit would have meant something different. And yeah. these things could have been an invitation. And maybe I don't take the invitation. Maybe I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I want to go see my friends. And I don't take the invitation. But at least the invitation would have been there. And the invitation is to a party that's deep. That's really great. You know, one thing we said to our kids, they were growing up, you can go out on Friday night. You go to a football game. Go to a party but we're lighting Shabbat candles. <laughs> yeah. I say, now we light Shabbat candles, go your way. Yeah. And so that anchored them through life. You know, both my, our daughters served in the Israeli army. So one thing we gave them was portable little, uh, uh, like, like candlesticks, but they're really just like little plates that fold together. Mm-hmm. And we said, wherever you are on a Friday, pull out a couple of, you know, what they call like tea. Tea light candles. Tea light candles. Yeah. And just always remember you have a soul. Um, so that ha- that has anchored, um, you know, our our marriage, uh, our, our raising of our children. I mean, if there's one metaphor that we've taken throughout our lives, is the light of God is the human soul. So when you're a parent, there's a light of God in your home. Mm-hmm. So you know, and I, I don't fault your family because this wisdom was almost unavailable sure. in American Judaism. Every, it was all about ethics and keep the tradition and don't marry outside the faith. And there's all this, you know, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but it's it, there's something so much more deep, uh, and it wasn't taught. Yeah. So I had to discover it myself. I mean, I didn't. My none of. I mean, I'm I'm fond of the rabbis that you know were the rabbis of my synagogue when I grew up. Uh, and by the way, when I do kids bar and bat mitzvahs in the Hebrew school, like I, I can't get through to them, right? So, but I just want them to know that Rabbi meant it. I had yeah. a Rabbi who meant it. Yeah, I had a Rabbi that my parents thought was a real thing. Yeah, a man, a man of spirit. And sometimes I have a kid come back to me 10, 15. I can't, you know, I, I was my first pulpit was in nineteen uh, uh, eighty one, eighty two in Irvine. A, a monthly pulpit okay so my first bar mitzvah bat mitzvah that i officiated at was uh 40 years ago wow so this kid is now 54 <laughs> and i've had people reach out to me in their 40s and 50s and say rabbi finley can i talk to you i just i had a moment and you were my bar mitzvah rabbi now i get you, <laughs> you know? yeah they were and they're finally they ready. just they realized wow i i kind of remember you and so i i see myself as planting seeds you know, I don't either. I either I will water that seed into a plant, or somebody else will. Uh, but you know, when when I when you look at yourself back at that age, I don't know if anybody could said anything to you. But look what you've become. Sure. I mean, you took a path into the depths of human consciousness as an act of will. No one made you do this. You know, yeah. you you chose this life. Yeah, it's really really admirable. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, it's it's very 
once you get started i think that's the key thing like you feel something and i was i was my pathway was through a, a vision quest wow and i was you know a traditional shaman who took me on a vision quest mm-hmm. and in that vision quest i ingested psilocybin mushrooms on this vision quest out with the coyotes howling and the rain swirling yeah. and it was this wild night and i was absolutely like completely agnostic leaning towards you know i don't really believe anything mm-hmm. i wouldn't say atheist because that's a faith in and of right. itself yeah. but staunchly agnostic and leaning towards atheist and then i felt my body evaporate mm-hmm. and I felt what I could only describe as my soul. That was the only word that was available to me. And I was like, oh dear. How old were you when this happened? I was 18. I was like, oh dear, this changes everything now. Now I have to rethink my whole mental construct. And I was just like, I had to give it to the fire to to be renewed. And I've once since that moment, I could never look away. See, I I had a a spiritual teacher uh, in high school who inducted me into a fellowship of con it's called the gurdjieff uh school of thought mm-hmm. uh but he used it he peeled away levels of consciousness in discussion so i had a similar experience under the able almost surgical hand of, a, of an experienced spiritual teacher uh, it was not in the curriculum he was not mm-hmm. supposed to be doing this with his <laughs> students right yeah uh uh but anyway he he um his method was i was in his science class and he would give the talk and then he'd say something kind of strange and like look right at me. Uh, I just remember one when we were talking about spontaneous generation. People didn't know where germs and bacteria came from. So they just thought, well, they just happen. So he said, so the idea behind spontaneous generation is there are realities that we cannot see. And then he'd like, <laughs> and then he'd go on with the talk and he kept doing this. So I came after school one You're day. Just looking behind I just, you. Like, what, like, what, what is, is going on, right? on here? So I, I came after school one day. I said, I have this feeling sometimes you're talking to me he says i was waiting for you to notice he says like yeah i i think you can get this do you want to meet with me and so we scheduled every wednesday after i was in 11th grade we scheduled every wednesday afternoon in uh s109 science building 109 and i i met with him for you know mostly every week Mm -hmm. for um almost two years wow and he was my spiritual mentor and he i had a similar experience to you except drugs never had that kind of effect on me Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact he said i had to stop he had you got to stop with the pot and all that it's just getting in your way and so he actually made me like unusually sober when i was in 12th grade he said okay that's it yeah it's like no no more of that because your mind is you know i want you to be a hundred percent present yeah it's very interesting intentionality has so much to it because he brought the intention of the divine through Mm -hmm. this and through using language and through his presence Mm -hmm. you know his presence was kind of this this light that Mm -hmm. that allowed you to to see things and it was the same with all of my teachers right it was it was never like i just took something in my house and Mm -hmm. had a oh had a very good so yes i never had a mentorship right so and and with me it was always very much that it was someone with a deep lineage that went a long time back to a tradition that had been alive and they carried this kind of the same thing though they carried the presence offered the presence and the intentionality through the medicine and then were there with the medicine and with me and with to to bring that and that's always where the the most powerful experiences Mm -hmm. have come from is it's just like this becomes just another avenue and another that's really that's very well put i mean i i really never thought about that that you know in the 70s 
like the revolution was over and we just got the drugs. Yeah. But there's no wisdom with the drugs. Right. It was just a bunch of teenagers getting high. Right. And then I had to stop. Um, but uh, my teacher in high school, uh, Jack Bishop, uh, one thing I did to clean myself up was going to the Marines. Mm -hmm. And then I found a spiritual, spiritual teacher in the Marine Corps. It was like out of nowhere, just all of a sudden I had a spiritual teacher. And you, you'll have to tell this story. I heard a little bit on your amazing podcast oh. with Rich Roll, but it's, it's worth telling because it's such like a, it's so crazy to think that first of all, you found one in science class. And then second of all, you found another spiritual teacher in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, my, you know, when, when he revealed himself to me, I thought, wow, they're hunting me. <laughs> I, I can't get away I'm being stalked i can't get away from these people you know yeah so uh yeah so this was uh sergeant robert throneberry uh vietnam vet tough he was an intelligence guy so he like he interrogated the Viet Cong kind of guy uh -huh. and uh so he did all i mean he did crazy stuff all the time uh, i think one story i told about the ghost platoon is that the one you're you remember yeah yeah so the ghost platoon was uh uh, oh, uh, I should say that in any platoon back in those days, we had about 80 guys, 20% were called Percy's, which is guys who joined the Marines on a spiritual search. And there's a lot of them, more really? than you can possibly imagine. Wow. Yeah. And then the others are called the Johnnies, which is the guys who like, I don't want to work at the warehouse anymore. And the judge said it's either jail or the Marines. So they're the Percy's and the Johnnies. Uh -huh. right? Now we're all good Marines. Yeah. You know, a Percy was just as tough as a Johnny, but the Percy's were on a spiritual search. Okay. So he, he noticed me. And uh, uh, anyway, so just to get to that story. So we're outside the chow hall and we're all at attention. They're backed up. So we're just standing. He says, oh, you think just because there's a back of the chow hall, you get to stand here and do nothing. He says, we're going to do, we're going to do uh, the rifle, the, the order, it's called the order of arms. You know, when you, Mm -hmm. your rifle throwing situation the next he said i drilled in a platoon to death and their ghosts are right here and there's ghost <laughs> rifles uh, you know on the deck so everybody pick up your rifle so we all pick up our ghost rifles he says so then he kind of looks at me and says does everybody have the right rifle as i got the cue i said sir this private does not have the correct rifle sir <laughs> <laughs> so he says who in the hell has private Finley's rifle. <laughs> so one of the other Percy's like, got it. Oh, game time. He says, yeah. sure, this private has private Finley's rifle. Why don't you just give that rifle to private Finley? Right? And, so, <laughs> like, and so the other guys are like, what's happening here? Like, what is going on? Right. So uh, one of the most remarkable things he did was when we were in the infantry school. Uh, so this is right after Vietnam. So we were like staging ambushes. And, and uh, so uh, and the thing with an ambush is absolute complete quiet mm -hmm. you don't sneeze you don't breathe because otherwise everybody gets killed mm -hmm. so here we are practicing an ambush and a guy starts to scream so he finds it turns out that uh he was terrified of snakes and it doesn't matter if you're terrified of snakes you snake can just crawl right over your head it doesn't matter <laughs> sure. you're in an ambush right sure okay so we're all lined up and he uh he um uh somehow gets a hold of a snake and he calls the private out, Private Johnson, and he has Private Johnson hold the snake, you know, by two <laughs> hands. And he's like in his ear, when I give you the word, when I give you the word, when I give you the word, and he's like getting all hyped up, he says, bite it. And Private Johnson bit the snake in half. Whoa. And then he said, now rub the blood on all the other Marines. 
And I thought, wow, this is like some primal. This is <laughs> yeah, like for sure. This is primal stuff, man. So he walked up and down the, you know, the, uh, you know the the platoon, and just like we all get a little bit of blood wiped on and our then, face. And that was Private Johnson was the one who was terrified. He was the one who screamed. He became the, he became Private Snake Catcher. Yeah. And so then he needed for some reason he needed another snake catcher. Okay. So I I don't remember how it happened because I knew that he was Private Snake Catcher, but then he yelled out private snake catcher and for some reason johnson was there i really don't remember why and and if you don't run up to the duty office we all do push-ups until somebody shows up right like he would say you know private swordsman you know like uh-huh. whoever knows something right so he says private snake catcher we're all looking at each other and we know he's going to come out and say get on your knuckles like what the hell like you know so i just pounded the door server private snake catcher reporting is ordered sir and so he has a a snake in a can he says i need to charm the snake and tell the snake to quit biting the privates of Platoon 3077. I said, sir, can the private go get his snake charming gear? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I go back to my footlock. I have a, my parents sent me my prayer shawl, okay? So I come back. I sit on the floor in, you know, crisscross legs. I put the prayer shawl over my head. I began chanting the Friday night service to the snake. <laughs> and the snake comes out of the, out of the it's like a coffee can, and looks right at me. He goes, okay, tell the snake. I said, snake? Go tell all your snake friends to stop biting the privates from Platoon 3077. He says, okay, dismissed. Right? <laughs> wow. I know, huh? So it was like he was he was off the chain, you know? Yeah. And we got to play along. Yeah. So that that was my that was my boot camp experience. It's so interesting to see where things are hiding in different places where you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And it took also, there's probably a lot of people who had the same you know, had the same commander as you, who or same sergeant as you, who didn't get it. They thought they just thought he was weird. They and just nuts. thought he was weird. And, they and, didn't and, get and, it and harsh. Right. Uh, he may be like an orderly. Uh, one last boot camp story. So mm-hmm. um, I got a little too familiar. I said, "Sir, how long did it take the sergeant to get from private to sergeant?" He looks at me and says, "Are you implying that I was ever a despicable private like you?" <laughs> I said, "Sir, the private apologizes, sir." So so he choked me out, rear naked choke. Pass right out. So, you know, when you pass out, you, you're still like aware of reality, but you're unconscious. It's sure. a weird thing. So he yells out, two privates come forward to retrieve Private Finley's body. <laughs> so a couple guys dragged me up, put me under my rack. And like, I'm, I'm saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. So I finally wake up. <laughs> it's like resurrection from the dead. I just get up and you know, clean my rifle or something. But this is the stuff he would do. So there are a lot of guys that were terrified of him. Of course. I was just so impressed. Yeah, like he used the fact that he had eighty captives mm-hmm. to just play with our minds because he said. I mean, one time he said, "War will play with your minds." Sure, I'll play with your minds here, because when you get into war, like the war I was in, you better be ready. Yeah, right. So it was it, for him. It was all about, you know, physical conditioning, you know, good Marine Corps skills, and breaking through the limitations of consciousness for those people who could get it. So. Uh, I mean, yeah. this is, I can see why you and Steve Pressfield have a lot of conversations that must be really interesting because you hear all of the stories of, you know, Sparta and mm-hmm. you hear the stories of how they would hone the mind mm-hmm. very much as much as the body. Like this is such a mental, such a mental process. And, and of course, everything that happens with the elite operators, the special forces, all of this. Yes, of course, the, the body's involved, but it's really the mind. There's body skills and there's like next level thinking. Yeah. And how do you break a person into next level thinking? You have to, in a way, deconstruct their reality. 
so they can so they can get into next level thinking. So I, I understood what he was doing. I understood mm-hmm. that he was basically disassembling our reality for those of us who could track him. Right. And um, I was I was awestruck by the, by the brilliance of this guy. He must have been all of twenty five at the time. I think about it. I was eighteen, probably 25, 26 years old. <laughs> right. You know, decorated Vietnam vet. You know. Mm-hmm. Did you ever look him up in your later life? I tried. Yeah. I tried. You know, when the internet came yeah. and I, uh, I went looking around and I finally found a guy around the right age, uh, you know, name. And I, you know, like when email came into being, yeah. I sent him an email. He said, sorry, I'm not your sergeant. He, it could have been he, because yeah. on the last day of boot camp, he came up to me and said to me, uh, Private Finley, I was a PFC at the time, uh, but so you're still called a private. He said, do not come looking me up because if I have to send you to your death, I will. So we can't be friends. That was his last words to me. Yeah, interesting. What? Well, you've had two powerful mentors. Yeah, at least two. At least yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and uh, I can and I can say the same. I mean, I right. think that's the that's the thing. It, you find if you're really paying attention, the mentors are around, and the mentors are looking for someone who's paying attention. That's the thing, that's right? right? It's like everybody's like, "How do you find a mentor? How do you find a mentor?" Be the mentee. Yeah. Like be the mentee looking and you'll you'll find it and they'll find you. And it's not where you think it is. Right. It's it's um yeah, they're around. And there has to be a uh there has to be a matchup, you know? Mm-hmm. It's um I mean, I've met spiritual geniuses in the strangest places. I when I live when I worked on a kibbutz in Israel. So I worked for the I, I volunteered to work in the uh in the citrus fields. So we get up super early in the morning and I, there's this one guy who's like, I could just tell he's like a deep guy. And I, and I, I finally, my Hebrew got good enough. And I, I, I just wanted to know like, uh, like, who are you? And he said, um, I walk on the black earth and I just know. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was our full relationship. <laughs> but you know what? I detected him. Yeah. And he detected me enough to know He's going to tell me something. Yeah. So I think you're right. And the thing is, you 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 once you start looking, there are people who are operating at a different level. All kinds of places. Yeah. And uh, and you got to be you got to trust in a way that that knowledge. I mean, that's an interesting theme that we've developed here is the importance of teachers, and the importance of um, allowing yourself to be a mentee. Yeah. 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 No doubt. All right, let's carry on okay. with the journey All right, through the right. different emanations. Okay. So we've we've gotten uh, Chesed and Gevura. Uh huh. Okay. So then the next one uh, is in a way the uh, intermediary between those, and it has two names. Uh, some call it Emet, which means truth, and some call it Tiferet, which means beauty. So Chesed and Gevura resolved into tr- resolve into truth and beauty. Mm. So that is just so. I mean, there's, I forget which poet said, uh, at the end of Ode to a Grecian Urn, um, beauty is truth and truth is beauty, and he finishes mm. it somewhere. So this idea uh, that somehow these are inherently connected concepts, that, that beauty communicates a truth, and truth communicates a beauty. So just first, at the, just the, the, the words as labels of inner realities, uh, so then when I teach this, you know, part of it is teaching the idea of truth. Well, first of all, there are that your words correspond to reality and then the truth of the human condition and the truth of the depth of human consciousness and the 
truth of the divine and the truth of the moral law. So there are so many levels and people get hung up on the empirical level. Uh, truth is, you know, there's no mystical reality. There's no metaphysics. Yeah. Truth only means that words correspond to reality. And I, it's much more, man. It's like, it's, it's the minute you start peeling away a concept like truth and then go to beauty. So people say to me, isn't beauty in the eye of the beholder? Where in the eye? <laughs> like the cornea? I said, it's a metaphor. What are you trying to say? Okay, so they, so they oh yeah, you're right. It's a metaphor. Never really thought about that. Right. Uh, so isn't beauty subjective? I said, nobody talks that way. When I see a beautiful painting, I, I said, I don't know if the painting's beautiful, but I'm going to have any experience of beauty. You say, the painting is beautiful. That's just yeah, the way we sure, talk. Sure. So when we say beauty, we're saying it as if there's a quality that inheres in something. And I'm not going to torture the English language enough to say, beauty doesn't inhere in things outside of me. So I don't buy into subjectivism. Right. So they say, well, what makes something beautiful? I don't know. Except that I didn't make it beautiful. Somebody else made it beautiful. All I did was perceive it. So once you realize that truth and beauty, and this is a very big argument in today, as you can imagine, it's a huge thing today, isn't all truth subjective? And my answer is no. Truth's like beauty. Right. It inheres. And when we perceive it, and then people say, well, I heard that all truth is subjective. I said, you'll excuse me, but you heard wrong. I, I don't know, I, like, I, you, you want to do the, like, sure. the long route or the short route? Because if your claim is that all truth is subjective and all beauty is subjective, I'm not going to try to argue out of it. You know, yeah. that's like, okay. But if you want to understand truth as, a, truth as a metaphysical reality and beauty as a metaphysical reality, there's a way to get there. In my own journeys, I've really kind of felt as if God, love, truth were synonyms mm -hmm. in an interesting way. And that there was all of those different concepts really mm -hmm. worked together in the same way. Mm -hmm. Love is always true. God is mm -hmm. always true. Truth is, it's, it, they're, they're all, it's right. all kind of a different way to describe. Well, the way I phrase the it same is, thing. and this is totally Kabbalah because remember, Chesed is love. Right. Gevura is justice, judgment, and Tiferet is truth and beauty. So I say love, justice, truth, and beauty are the garments of God. <laughs> yeah. And so what does God look like? I say look at God's garments. Yeah. Love, justice, truth, and beauty. Then I extend by saying the good, you know, which is how they all operate, and then the holy. So I've refined it since I was a younger man. I would say love, justice, and truth, and beauty are the garments of God, and they're garments of the, the philosophic good that to which we human beings ought to aspire. Yeah. The experience of it is the holy, and then behind that is the divine mind. And beauty is interesting because beauty is, it, it inspires a sense of awe mm -hmm. and a sense of wonder, wow. Like that's the response when you mm -hmm. see something, a beautiful Correct. painting, wow. Yeah. A beautiful sunset, wow. Correct. And that is the only natural response to looking at God. Precisely. Wow. So, 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 so beauty is an awesome experience. Yes. And sometimes when you read something profoundly true, for example, you'd be watching a movie yeah. and they cut it exactly right. And you say, there was more truth in that scene just now than I, and then I reflect in any philosophic book I read. I mean, I really love mm -hmm. cinema and I just love it when the casting director and the writer and the, you know, and the set designer, and they all conspired to create a moment where 
you know, this pulsing with truth and beauty, and you can see you can see the metaphysical reality coming through the screen. Yeah. It's overwhelming. So was that truth or beauty? <laughs> same. <laughs> it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, I interviewed Matthew McConaughey, and uh, did you see the movie Interstellar? Yes. So you know the scene where he's they've just gone to that planet and he's lost 40 years and he has all the recordings mm-hmm. of his daughter growing up and his son growing up and he's just lost all of this time mm-hmm. and he's sitting in the chair trying to just reconcile with the fact that he's just lost whatever it was 30 mm-hmm. 40 years mm-hmm. and he was talking about that moment that was one of the most powerful moments i've ever seen mm-hmm. in film and it's very simple it's just a close up you know of him going through this experience but it was it was true and when he talked about it he talked about how he got him in got into that and he just passed a note and he knew that he was just going to deliver that that scene and it was just going to be one time Mm -hmm. and he said because anything after the first time would have been acting Mm -hmm. like wow the first this time was true everything else i would have been acting wow that's incredible you know and 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 i when he said that i was like fuck that's right that's exactly right. that's exactly right this was true when you did that that was that wasn't acting you were you were really there i love him now he was in true detective right with uh okay so did you watch the series no okay so at the end of was he in was he in true detective yeah with uh woody harrelson so woody harrelson plays the the drunk cop who's like burnout and matthew mcconaughey you don't know if he's a mystic or if he's psychotic that we don't fully know but toward the end there's this one scene where he's right between mysticism and psychosis and then they <laughs> they show us the world that he sees and you start to doubt well what is psychosis other than a break with mundane reality <laughs> you know and it, it was i mean i i watched it in awe yeah of him you know everything i mean I, I so i remember that moment more than interstellar because as sometimes i'll just i'll watch the the series to earn that moment yeah i gotta see it oh I gotta man watch it. it was I'm... uh yeah uh true detective and another favorite of mine is the tv series fargo the movie was great but the uh-huh. tv series I saw a little bit of that yeah yeah so the 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 um uh the, th- the first three seasons of the tv series every single one of them had those achingly true and beautiful moments mm-hmm. um so i i some i, I think now our, our perhaps our greatest art form right now really is uh you know is television where they can actually develop something you know through sure through eight uh ten episodes i'm really a fan of great deep edgy television i think the art reflects what the culture really loves the most mm-hmm. you know i mean there was a time when sculpture was what culture loved the most and there was some amazing you look at a bernini or you look at a canova and you're like oh wow this is unbelievable you know when you see the daphne and apollo and you see the way that the hands press into the flesh even though it's made of marble and you just i remember staring at that one in the rata persephone the rape of persephone i'm looking at these like oh my goodness it's as if they're compressing all of reality into yeah. something physical and the reality is did you ever read rilke's uh poem uh uh the headless torso of apollo no okay so when the muslims invaded greece they, they didn't like images they cut the heads off of the all the statues so down there there's a there's a statue it's called the headless torso of apollo because the head because the head's gone mm-hmm. so he's looking at the torso and then trying to imagine the head and he leads you on this path of what it means to experience something and then experience the absence of something 
And it's just an awesome, maybe 10, 12 lines. And then there's skip a space and it says, you must change your life. <laughs> the head, I mean, you will shudder wow. when you read, because of your appreciation of sculpture, sure. when you read The Headless Horse of Apollo. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you're right. There was a time with sculpture. For me, it's mostly poetry. Sure. And, you know, and scripture. And, uh, and now I'm just in awe of, uh, you know, what cinema Mm -hmm. uh, can produce. So I feel just a beneficiary of, you know, living at a time when there's so much, you know, beauty in, in the fine arts and beauty in music, you know, and beauty in the written word and yeah. beauty in cinema. It's just, and we still have access to different times when someone could spend four years on a sculpture mm -hmm. or, you know, a couple years on a painting and not worrying about whether they had to sell it because they had a patron and just a whole yeah. different yeah. world yeah. that we get to still appreciate that beauty if if we're willing to, yeah. and, we're willing and, to go and there. Churches, I just I just read a book called Beauty, uh, it's called Beauty, A Very Short Introduction. Mm -hmm. So he goes into the debates. And so I looked up everything he mentioned and I went into uh, photographs of, uh, of, um, of, of churches that I'd never seen before, but they're hidden all over Europe astounding astounding works of art uh and the fact that he introduced it to me you know, he says look how the column resolves into a robe which resolves into an octagon which turns into an art so uh, no one ever taught me how to look at you know at, at architecture as poetry sure. right so i as so i'm looking at this stuff and saying wow man this just this poetic urge is you know which in which the presence of the divine is is compressed and and flowing through it's a it's you know it's such a shame that this understanding of beauty and the and the the essence of beauty being divine was not translated through all of the religious dogma you know where different forms of art were suppressed different forms of dance were suppressed different mm -hmm. forms of song were suppressed mm -hmm. even the act of love making, which is in, mm -hmm. an incredible gateway into the divine, if you're doing it with the right intention, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. all of these things were cast aside as, oh no, these are bad, right. you know. Well, if they're beautiful, they're pointing, they're they're a doorway to God, they're mm -hmm. a portal to God, mm -hmm. you know. If they really are beautiful and the intention is there, and and that if that would have permeated through everything, I mean, the whole world would be a different place. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I wonder. Uh, when I the couple times I have been in Europe, I've gone into cathedrals, and they're overwhelming, and they they found a way around it because the sculptures, for example, of the, uh, the, the I think it's called a uh, uh, carcophagus. You know, when they have a, an mm -hmm. image of the person inside. Mm -hmm. I mean, the images of the women that were buried there. <laughs> I mean, it was like for a dead woman. It's like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, you course. guys, you guys are pushing the boundaries <laughs> here. So you would go under the under the cathedral into the mausoleum. And you'd have these, you know, the images of the of the all the royalty that were buried down there. I mean, it was it was stunningly, stunningly beautiful. And then you look at the same cultures that create the most poetic and architectural beauty can be come savage. Yeah, you know, at the at the you know at a at an instance of a of a of a um, of a demagogue or something. So mm -hmm. I, I I wish that beauty were made people immune yeah but you true. know what i think it's there's no 
replacement for hard work on consciousness. Yeah. There's no shortcut. Yeah. If you want to be a just person, you got to work on truth, beauty, and love. You want to be a loving person, you got to work on justice, truth, and beauty. It's like for me, those four, you got to stay hard at work on love, justice, truth, and beauty because they all entail each other. Yeah. I mean, it actually goes back even, you can even talk about the pyramids again, right? Exactly. Beautiful. And actually, if you go talk about the mystical purpose of the inner chambers Mm -hmm. in this acoustically resonant void where people could connect to the mystery Mm -hmm. of all of the divine. All right. Well, yeah, beautiful. Made by slaves. Exactly. (laughs) You know, like, it's like you you got got some of it, but nonetheless, how many died? You know, how many? Precisely. This was built in, in, death and blood and yeah and so here here we have the kind of ironic tragic booth of the uh, uh tragic compressing of the human condition and so you know when i think of my work as a as a spiritual teacher drilled down into a rabbi who's shifting into wisdom for everybody uh you know for me it's one 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 marine at a time you know one cadet, <laughs> one person at a time and maybe one hood at a time one exactly. <laughs> well but my yeah. students aren't ba- aren't aren't as bad as that but, yeah sure you know i just i want them to see the mystery just like you know like there's a soul in your home it's not the spouse you're arguing with there's a soul trying to get out and are you ushering that soul out are you are you uh, are you uh, obscuring that light it's uh, beautiful yeah yeah thank you it's beautiful thank you let's continue on the journey all right, man. You want to, you want to do some more Kabbalah? Some more Kabbalah. Yeah, let's go all the way down to the all, all right, the way okay. to the end here. All right. So the the so you have Chesed and Gevura concentrate into Tiferet Emet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a triangle. The next triangle is uh, called Netzach, uh, which literally means victory, but the interior is prophecy. Okay. okay. So prophetic prophecy means some people speak words that convey the presence of God. Mm. some do and some don't you know so the idea is there are people that when they talk when they speak and you attend to it you can feel god's presence coming through so Mm. it's the reality that there are spiritually gifted among us Mm -hmm. so that so the word is netzach which means victory but the interior is prophecy so you might say divine force pushed out through language right so notice chesed is a force Gavura is a container. They resolve into Tiferet Emet. Goes to Netzach, which is both force and form. Mm-hmm. The force and form of language. Okay, Right across from Netzach, there's the one called... Sounds like almost even embodied language. Like, like the language as it comes through a vessel. Because the words can be empty, but the, if the words... Or the words exactly. can be full. So Martin Luther King's speech. Yeah. Um, somebody else could have read it it wouldn't we wouldn't remember it right, <laughs> right exactly no i mean i i was a, look i was a kid when I, I mean i saw that on television yeah it changed the country yeah you want to see a moment that changed the country that moment changed our country i mean that was a prophetic moment yes where everybody watching it just about everybody watching it changed their mind yeah you know so um so that's prophecy yeah uh lincoln's gettysburg address mm-hmm. uh anyway so Exactly. It's the words with the power of something behind it. So notice if chesed and gavura are force of love, the form of good judgment, mediated through tiferet emet, truth and beauty, then that goes into prophecy. Okay. Isn't it beautiful the way the system works? Yeah. So right across from uh, uh, Netzach is called Hod. 
which is another word for beauty, but here it has more of a sense of architectural beauty. So you have the prophet and the priest. Mm-hmm. So the priest, you know, is in the cathedral. The priest is in the temple. So you have the power of the word and the power of the form of beauty. Think of architecture. Mm-hmm. And um, and so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, I'll I counsel myself because I'm much more of a word person. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the space in which I live, and my constant challenge is to make the space in which I inhabit look like a work of art. Mm. And I tend to have a you know like a messy desk and books strewn about, and I say <laughs> no, I it my space has to reflect the beauty that I've experienced. That's my challenge. So whenever I give my talk on uh, Netzach and Hod prophecy and uh, architecture, that's usually my talk to myself. Right. And a lot of people resonate to it. A lot of people say, yeah, I kind of bulldoze through life and one thing after the other, and I never stop and build a cathedral. I never stop and turn this into a work of art. So that's a very deep teaching for me. Uh, those two resolved in what's called the yesod, which means foundation. In the Kabbalah, it actually refers to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I like to lift it above sexuality, and I try to think of how all of these become present in the human personality including sexuality because you can you can take erotic sexuality and just understand the greek idea of eros which is human bonding so it becomes personality object relations you know how we our interior connects to the world including sex so when i teach yesod it's now it's down to how does this shape your personality the next one is the goal because the next one is the brokenness of god it Mm. all gets broken all this beauty, it gets broken, and we got to put it back together. So the last one is called the uh, Malchut Shechina, and again, it's very complex. There are so many ways to teach it, but ultimately, it means the sovereign, the sovereignty of God. But the interior of it is the broken sovereignty of God. So sometimes when I teach this field, I go the other way up. Mm. I say, let's start with our brokenness. Mm. Now, under your brokenness. What's the truth of your personality trying to get through? So everybody has a personality. Everybody has a, you know, a, ver- a version of the divine. Okay, now we'll go up into the architecture. Then over to prophecy. What about the sexuality? Uh, that too. Because um, uh, it seems like there's a, there's, that really actually is deeply connected to our brokenness. In many, in many cases, what I've seen in... Well, you know, all of them have a version of brokenness. So, right. so that's where when, you, when, when it goes from brokenness into yesod... Um, you know, people's sexuality can be purely gratification oriented. Sure. It can be, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it can run into troubles because of glitches in the human brain. But let's and, say. And, and condition shame, condition judgment, condition performative, condition ideas that this is, this is the essence of who I am, my sexuality, how I perform is how I am as a man, yeah. or how, if, whether I'm attracted. Like, there's a lot that can get really squirrely there in that in that emanation you know so interesting i'm just i'm just a heterosexual male and i love my wife (laughs) yeah i've never really thought i mean i assume well i don't really care about somebody's gender identity i you know you love somebody right are you kind to each other right is it is expressing your sexuality that's all i need to know like i'm really not interested in anything else (laughs) right you know so i'm kind of a simpleton yeah in this stuff but when it does come down to it, I mean, if I'm really getting into the, you know, kind of the intimate life of another person, we, we will talk about how sexual energy gets communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some people are very shut down. 
Some people are way too present and that's something they need to work on. Mm -hmm. So, but for me, it's part of personality. Sure. Uh, so Freud said it all was rooted in sexuality. I think some of it is rooted in sexuality. I agree. Because I'm more of a, I'm more of a Jungian than a Freudian. Um, I see the gods operating within us and trying to manifest in our different personalities. Um, so um, when I think of Yasod, I go more on the path of Carl Jung than, than Freud. Mm -hmm. And that, that's been forever. So it's like, I've never really occurred to me that there's a different way to think about it because, you know, when it, when you know, a person says, well, I have this trauma from my childhood, which is why I do this. And I say, maybe the God of war is living in you. <laughs> maybe you're a warrior. Maybe you weren't traumatized. Maybe, you know, this one guy says, I'm always angry when I'm closing a deal. I say, you sound like a man on a hunt. Hmm. Every tribe needs a hunter. <laughs> there's, so there's no problem with wanting to close deals. Are you fair? Are you honest? Are you, con you keep your contracts? Okay, so you're after deals. Like the, tr the, the, the hunter from which you are descended, thank God that guy was in the tribe <laughs> that did not give up until he closed the deal and brought right. some you know, meat back. So anytime a person says, oh, I'm this, I try to go to the tribe and ask myself, who is that person in the tribe? Like the anxious person? I said, we're putting you on the hill to keep an eye out for the enemy. <laughs> right. Right? right. So the scout. Exactly. You want an anxious person up there. When a person says, I have anxiety, and it's because of that. I said, who knows? Maybe anxiety was the, mo the most important thing in the tribe from which you're descended, that somebody would not fall asleep on guard duty. And lifting that judgment from all of these things actually allows it the freedom to breathe and potentially the freedom to alchemize. And they say, oh, okay. Because when you judge something, you actually strengthen it. You, you know, strike that it's it's the going back to Pressville. The nature of it, is res, it, it becomes a force of resistance, yeah, to enlightenment. And and this goes back to the idea of the brokenness. That whenever a person says, "Oh, this is bad about me," I said, "You know, you know, you've discovered your life life's work." So when you break, when you look at these the Sephirotic system, and some people more gravitate to one than the other, and they say, "Wow, I really, I really don't love well." And I say, that's the brokenness that God gave you. Hmm. So now your job is to repair yourself, repair the, the vessel of God that you are. This is the Lurianic Kabbalah, where we are each given brokenness so that we can repair ourselves, repair each other, and repair, and repair God. So this is the idea of the divine brokenness. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I remember when I thought that, when I, you know, I had issues of why am I like this and this is not good. And, and I thought to myself, it's just my brokenness. It's just my life's work. I don't, don't, don't get super serious about it. I got, I got work to do. Right. Like when I get up in the morning, I, I got my work to do, and I got my real work to do. And a big problem comes when you start comparing yourself to somebody else, not appreciating that they have their own brokenness and they have their own life work, and your work is just different than theirs. And again, it goes to that, that value hierarchy yeah. that we always try to create. Well, my, theirs is better than mine. Well, no, it's not. It's just you know, your When own. you're really tied to your work, there's no envy. Yeah. There's no comparing. You're so busy with your work, you don't even have time to start comparing yourself to your neighbor and coveting what your neighbor has. Right. I mean, the focus on spiritual work is one of the healthiest things that people can do. Is the main thing I want to do is refine my spirit and work with my character and repair these broken spherot in, in my system and be as present as I can to the people around me and, and be a channel of love, justice, truth, and beauty, the good and the holy. And that's enough. That's enough to keep you occupied. 
for sure. For many lifetimes. Yeah, for many lifetimes. That's exactly right. When you talk about the foundation as the emanation, obviously there's the place that mm-hmm. you're in. So, you know, you create a home, mm-hmm. you know, it's a house or it's a home. And, and there's certain elements that make it a home where somebody comes in, you know, and one of the things my home is is filled with different artifacts and mm-hmm. art and different things that I've collected through mm-hmm. all my journeys. Mm-hmm. And we have some, you know, nice furniture and different things, but people walk in and they go, oh, wow, they, they feel something in there. And, yeah. that's, and I feel something in there. And that's what I've tried to cultivate. That, that's really clear. Is there also a point where your foundation is your physical body, mm-hmm. like this temple? Very much so. And so your jujitsu practice, mm-hmm. your jujitsu black belt, I don't think we've talked about mm-hmm. that yet today, but that practice or your, your physical health. And I mean, because this becomes ultimately our ultimate temple. So how you take care of yourself. Exactly. So, um, I mean, there are great Jewish medieval theologians that start with the health of your body. Mm-hmm. And then through that, the health of your emotions and the health of your character. So they see them all, all as connected. This is nothing new. This is, goes back to the medievals and it goes back to the Greeks. I mean, people really understood that the foundation is the way you treat your body. So my connection to jujitsu is a way to embody myself because I spend so much time in an in, in ethereal metaphysical world. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being physically connected to other people through sparring, like there's nothing metaphoric about sparring, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's nothing as real as a tap. <laughs> yeah, for you sure. Know? Like for sure. It's, it's, it's real. Yeah. And so I love the fact that I do something so physical where there's no ambiguity i mean there's skill and there's grace and there's art but somebody taps or somebody doesn't or it's a tie right you know and just the satisfaction of i'm a good practitioner i my game gets better i elevate the, that's the, the job of higher belts is to elevate the games of the lower belts mm-hmm. that's our singular job there are then guys that have been brown belts too long and they didn't understand because their 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 skill is greater than many of the black belts and we can't tell them <laughs> it's because you're not committed to the game of people that are of a lower rank right when you get that you get your black belt right and so the because that's the higher principle of service that's, that's the a higher, higher principle of love we're in service to the discipline that's exactly right. rather right. than just trying to smash everybody to prove how good you are that's you know what the black belt who taps to a white belt they're working at a very high level of <laughs> yeah you earned it you get it yeah yeah it's also a shame too that you know i think a lot a big challenge has been that people have created a value hierarchy where spirit is more important than body and so you get these asceticisms and renunciate paths where Mm -hmm. they just let the body go to waste Mm -hmm. so it's all about the spirit well the body is the physical manifestation of spirit you know and so when you create this hierarchy say oh you know god's up there and and not down here in this lowly little body well that's yeah that has been one of the problems of the uh you know the idea that the body is bad yeah um uh you know the spirit is connected to god and the urges of the body are somehow evil you know that that dichotomy that's been very bad that's really messed people up yeah i mean i've I've counseled a few young men who grew up in very devout religious homes and they're very ashamed of their physical urges and you know part of my job is to say oh wait a second here (laughs) you know like um, it's not the fact that you have these. What do you do with it? Like it's beautiful if you make it beautiful. Yeah. But some because they feel the urge, and someone told it's bad and that's shameful, and you know you should, you know it, it's 
you know, only get married as a way to subdue your urges, and you know that the, the, those kinds of teachings I think are really somewhat disfiguring for the human being. Sure, you you're really interested in Yasod. I really like it mm-hmm. because uh, I kind of like pass through that, and you're really making me stick to it. And I like it <laughs> because you're you're you 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 really you grasp foundation. Yeah, and you're and you're bringing it out to so many different different aspects. So I mean, this this is like is your entry to the spherot. I, sure. I, I feel it, that, that sure. that's your way into all of them, is how do they all translate into a foundation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the brilliant, isn't the, the brilliance of the system, you know, uh, infinite generative point of consciousness, the quarry of language, love, justice, truth, beauty, prophecy, architecture, yesod, brokenness of God. It's an infinite system to, to, to sharpen our minds and spirits. You know, you come down, you go up, you come down, you go up. It's it's infinite. So I really thank you for, for having me take the time and lead you through it because uh, Yeah, I thank you. I mean, I as you said, I've never encountered a map that was as interesting and deep as this. And this is something where a little bit of work, and I've actually seen it. I've seen it. Yeah, you you've know, seen the map, right? I've yeah. seen the map and it's it has its own geometry mm-hmm. and it's laid out mm-hmm. and there's little nodes and then there's lines that connect the nodes Correct. and there's this whole process, but without this understanding, yeah. without my time you're stuck spent with labels. here, I'm like, ah, yeah. oh, well, yeah, you're, what, is, you're, what is this? You're, I don't know, you're, I don't know you're, what I mean, this you're, is. You've really done a good job in eliciting it because I don't think I've ever done this in my life is sat down and gave the whole system in one sitting. <laughs> well, so, excellent. Yeah. No, really. I'm like, I said, wow, you really want to go the whole way? All right. <laughs> so, but, you, but, you're, but the main thing is the labels are not the interior. Of course. And, we, and what you've done is you've drawn out the interior of each label I can see that you're getting the deeper interconnections between them and what a lifelong study of this could produce. So Well, I, I feel I feel excited. I actually just got goosebumps, but yeah. I, I'm excited. You know, yeah. I'm excited to just this entry into this path and also my own my own roots and my yeah. own and yeah. being able to there's something there. There's yeah. something there. There's a reason why I don't know if there's a reason, but for whatever reason, if there is a reason, I was put in this. Yeah in this Jewish lineage body, in yeah. the Jewish tradition family. And now something else is coming to me where it's like, all right, all right, this is now, and all the work that I've done and all the journeys that I've gone on, it seems like uh, just a beautiful opportunity, an, an invitation, yeah, let's thank say. You. An invitation well, you know, the last words that my high school teacher said to me, uh, I came back from overseas and I tracked him down. I went to his kind of a hovel, you know, where he mm-hmm. was like, illuminating it with his brilliance and and um he, he would teach me he says you know what finley he said um my roots are danish he said you really got to go back to your people there's stuff in the jewish tradition that you don't know that you have to go find mm. he said like we're done wow and it was a blessing you yeah. know go forth yeah. you know like to abraham go forth to a land that i will show you you know and so he kind of said hey man like we had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we love each other. And now go find your way yeah. in, you know, back in your traditions. And I was 21, and within two years, I was teaching Kabbalah. You know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, there's in a lot of the different traditions that I've been involved in, you know, ancestors are a big part, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a Native American culture, whether mm-hmm. it's a Peruvian culture, whether it's Pibo, or mm-hmm. these different cultures that I've been you know, where you talk about the honoring of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's always been 
something that's difficult mm-hmm. because well all right well i had family that you know passed on to me but i don't think of them like ancestors mm-hmm. you know there's a mm-hmm. certain reverence that i've never really been able to feel i'll do it you yeah. know i'll, I'll yeah. honor the ancestors but it's been more like the husk it's and so not the interesting kernel. that you say that the i i don't think we americans have a sense of ancestry yeah we have to really try to create that because you know my father was not born jewish he converted right before my bar mitzvah mm-hmm. and the last 10 15 years of my life um i've tapped into my celtic ancestry mm-hmm. and so i've studied books on celtic spirituality and you know i don't, don't want to leave it behind my my uh my father's father was irish and my father's mother was german mm-hmm. so there's a german protestant background so um you know, I, I'm deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition, and I have—I know I have ancestors that were Talmud scholars and Kabbalah scholars, but there's but there's another group. Sure. And uh, and I, I don't know if this knowledge is passed on genetically, but they're my ancestors. Right. So I'm going to take it seriously. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Like I, I like I went to like like people from a thousand years ago. Yeah. Said, "Wow, so our wisdom is still." is still pulsating into the world because of our descendant yeah it's, it's, a, it's a big thing yeah that we that we channel the ancestors yeah well my grand my grandmother would be very happy that yeah. i'm sitting here right now with you and uh just thank you so much for yeah, this conversation you, this has and really been uh truly delightful and i did not agreed. know what to expect i looked you up and <laughs> You are not your your image. You yeah. are so much more. I want well, everybody to know right right here. Thank you. This is this is um, really special. Really, thank you so much. Yeah, and I and I feel very much in my heart that this is just the start of a very warm friendship. Outstanding. I'm up, I'm up for it, man. All right. All right. Very good. Thank you, everybody. Thank much you. love. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Rabbi Mordecai Finley. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. And of course, if you want to go deeper, check out the Fit for Service Fellowship, aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.